Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? We started to talk about how Jane Fonda and Jean Seberg both drew the FBI's attention, in part due to their support of the Black Panthers, the Black radical group that J. Edgar Hoover was personally intent on destroying. One key element of his campaign was to disparage high-profile white proponents of civil rights who spoke out against the U.S.'s policies and gave money to revolutionary and radical groups who the FBI had deemed to be enemies of the state. In 1970, the FBI was interested in two high-profile white American women in particular. Jane Fonda's activism, of course, went way beyond her support of the Panthers, as we've already seen and will continue to explore today. Though Jean Seberg, as we've seen and will see, continued to support the Panthers from her home base of Paris, her activism was far less visible and potentially influential on the American people than Jane's. It seems that one thing that Seberg and Fonda had in common, in the eyes of the Bureau, was that they raised the specter of miscegenation. And this is part of why they were both fiercely targeted. According to one FBI agent quoted anonymously in a Gene Seberg biography, many of the agents took their mission to investigate her personally because they were so personally offended by the mental image of a white woman having sex with a non-white man. Perhaps the evidence they found of Seberg's affairs with black men gave the Bureau what they felt was licensed to believe rumors that Jane Fonda had had an affair with Black Panther Huey Newton. Fonda, who has not been shy discussing her past sex life, 
and who reportedly once said that her, quote, biggest regret is I never got to fuck Che Guevara, would later say that she and Newton were never alone together. The FBI would have to look elsewhere to find a hook on which to hang their campaign against Fonda, and she would give them that hook with her trip to Vietnam in 1972. By that time, the FBI had gone all in on destroying Gene Seberg. Join us, won't you, for part seven of Gene and Jane. Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. After her work with the Winter Soldier investigation, Jane moved with her daughter Vanessa back to Los Angeles. She only had enough money to rent a small house, and she continued to keep her clute shag and the t-shirt and jeans look that allowed her to more or less blend in with students and amongst veterans. It's sort of relaxing, she reportedly said, to be poor. Around this time, Jane cut herself off from the Black Panthers. She felt that she had been exploited for what were perceived to be her deep pockets, and she suspected that the Panthers talked unkindly about her and spread rumors behind her back. She focused her energy on uniting the entertainment community in an effort to stop the war. Her partner in this, for a while, was Donald Sutherland, who had been her boyfriend since the Clute shoot. Sutherland had by now split up with Shirley Douglas, his second wife, and the activist who had been instrumental in Jane's interest in the Panthers, espousing to Jane the work they did in their communities, like providing breakfast to schoolchildren. A few months before the Klute shoot, on the Yugoslavian set of Kelly's Heroes, Sutherland had heard, from Clint Eastwood of all people, that Shirley had been arrested for buying grenades for the Panthers. The charges were eventually dropped, but now Sutherland and Douglas were divorcing, and thanks to the FBI's interest in her, the Canadian Shirley could not get a work permit. So she and her children, Kiefer and Rachel, moved to Toronto. Just as Jane had gone all in on activism, with his marriage over, Donald Sutherland went all in on Jane. Together they spearheaded the forming of a company, which also included comedian Dick Gregory and actor Peter Boyle, to put on a traveling variety show called FTA, which stood for Free the Army, although FTA was also enlisted man shorthand for Fuck the Army. Jane took charge of FTA's content, which drew heavily from real enlisted person experiences, as detailed in GI newspapers. There was a skit in which Jane played Pat Nixon, warning her husband that there were barbarians at the gate of the White House. When he said, I better call the army, Jane, as Pat, said, You can't, Richard. It is the army. The crowds of enlisted men would go wild at that punchline. Jane took care to address army women, too. There was a scene in which Jane and three other female performers sang a song called Tired of the Fuckers Fucking Over Me. Jane rejected material created for the show that she deemed too sexist. Playwright Herb Gardner, who had one of his skits rejected, complained that Jane had no sense of humor, which would become a frequent criticism of Fonda from now on, and one that was itself sexist. She, quote-unquote, had a sense of humor when she had fluffy blonde hair and made light movies that invited viewers to contemplate her body. 
But now that she wore t-shirts and had short hair and didn't want a show that was fueled on her own participation and force of will to treat women as inherently second-class citizens by reducing them to their bodies, now she could no longer take a joke. Jane dreamed of performing FTA in Vietnam, but the military shot that down. They wouldn't even let them perform it on a domestic base. So FTA made its debut at an off-base coffee house near Fort Bragg. The Los Angeles Times wrote a rave write-up of the initial performance and a tour of 15 U.S. cities and eventually several stops in the South Pacific followed. High on this success, Jane and Sutherland tried to form an organization called Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice, through which they hoped big stars would unite to donate money and promote an end to the war. Jane used the group as an incubator for some wacky experiments, including a demonstration she planned to take place on Bob Hope's front lawn. She coaxed a number of young volunteers into painting their faces white in mimicry of Vietnamese corpses. And then she drove them over to Hope's house in her Volvo. Jane waited in her car while her protesters lay down on the lawn and were almost immediately chased off by guards with dogs. Everybody scrambled back into Jane's car, and she sped away. Though the first meeting drew the likes of Barbara Streisand and Sally Field, the entertainment industry for peace and justice group fell apart quickly due to infighting, a lack of management skills, and some bad decisions. The same problems plagued the FTA group. When John and Yoko wanted to join, Jane and Sutherland decided to reject them because they were too famous. Then Jane, Sutherland, and Boyle went up to Santa Rosa to star in a movie called Steel Yard Blues, the first producing effort of Julia, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, Phillips. In the middle of the shoot, Jane broke up with Sutherland, which devastated him. Jane then began dating Robert Shear a Berkeley activist and the editor of the radical publication Ramparts Magazine. Scheer lived in a commune called The Red House with his ex-wife, Anne Wiles, who had recently been involved with another commune member, Tom Hayden. Anne would later call Hayden the most manipulative man, the most power-conscious man I have ever known, and she also accused him of being a male chauvinist pig. When Wiles turned on Hayden... The rest of the commune had joined with her in ejecting him from the house. With the women of the Red House as an inspiration, Jane jumped headfirst into feminism. She started hosting quote-unquote struggle sessions, in which women could confront men about all of the hardships they had suffered thanks to their gender. Throughout all of this, Jane would turn down the female leads in Chinatown, Carnal Knowledge, and The Exorcist. Clute had opened and was netting raves. Jane's Brie would become an extremely influential icon for women of the era struggling with their own selfhood at the peak of second-wave feminism. Now Jane didn't want to take time away from her activism to make a movie unless it did something positive for one of her causes. By early 1972, she had agreed to go to France to work with Jean-Luc Godard, who since May 1968 had reorganized his own filmmaking efforts around his Maoist politics. Godard was no Jane Fonda, but since we last heard from him, he had acquired his own notoriety as a celebrity activist. He had been moving towards Maoism, a trendy with students' leftism inspired by Chinese communism, since 1966, and he had made a film inspired by the movement La Chinoise. Godard said his initial intent with this film was to, quote, reunite Moscow and Peking against the common enemy, the Americans. Godard, who had once idolized Hollywood movies, was now, as he put it, Quote, distancing myself from the entire cinema that formed me. I am distancing myself from 30 years of talking pictures. Later, while on a tour of American universities where he was all but worshipped by students, Godard told Newsweek, Every film is the result of the society that produced it. That's why the American cinema is so bad now. It reflects an unhealthy society. 
La Chinoise focused on a group of young French communists who decide to turn their theory into action by assassinating a Soviet author. The film would be seen as foreshadowing the cultural upheavals of the coming years in France, even though the actual young Maoists on whom it was based hated it. It would mark Godard's entree into a period of a political and highly experimental cinema, mostly in collaboration with Jean-Pierre Gorin in what they called the Ziga Vertov Group, in tribute to the Soviet filmmaker of the 1920s who sought to capture truth on film. Godard's version of film truth was always Godardian. The jump cuts he invented while editing Breathless had by now morphed into an aesthetic of dialectical juxtapositions, an idea embodied by the title of his 1968 film, One Plus One, which grew out of an assignment to film The Rolling Stones while they composed Sympathy for the Devil in a London studio. Godard would use the band as just one element of a stew that included staged commentary on the Black Power movement, readings from Mein Kampf, and Godard's wife at the time, Anne Wyazemski, as a symbolic character called Eve Democracy, who could only answer complex political questions with a yes or no. In the years following the French social upheaval of May 1968, in addition to One Plus One, Godard's filmmaking output would consist primarily of documentaries and semi-documentary essay films. Tout va bien, or Everything is Fine, starring Jane as a journalist who arrives with her filmmaker husband at a factory to report a story on management and gets held hostage there when the workers strike, would represent for Godard a return to a more conventional style of feature filmmaking, while still taking as its subject class struggle in the aftermath of May 68. Jane believed in what the movie was ostensibly about, and like Jane, Godard was sympathetic to the Vietnamese people. But after arriving in Paris, Jane had second thoughts, and she tried to back out of the movie. She told Garon she now only wanted to work with female filmmakers. This didn't work. Jane had signed a contract, and the film's financing was in large part dependent on her participation, and that of her co-star, Yves Montand. Godard got into a near-fatal motorcycle accident right before filming, and emerged from a coma in need of much physical therapy. But the show still went on. With Godard in bad shape, his vision was carried out on set by Jean-Pierre Goron. It's easy to see why Jane would have wanted out of Tuvabian. The movie is often fascinating, always interesting to look at, and frequently very funny, even if the political moment that it documents is so highly specific and so French that it can be difficult to relate to. All of that said, Garant and Godard's use of Jane Fonda seems like a clear effort to exploit her stardom for their commercial purposes while refusing to treat her or allowing her to behave like a star within the frame of the film. The filmmakers wink at this at the beginning of the film. We see a hand writing checks for costumes, film stock, and all the sundry costs of making a movie. And an off-screen female voice says, For a film, you need money. If you use stars, people will give you money. A male voice responds, Then we'll use stars. For the bulk of the movie, while Fonda and Montan are trapped in the factory amongst the radicalized workers, Fonda is shot from afar, or glimpsed barely at the back of a pack of highly active and brightly dressed ensemble players, and that's if she's on camera at all. This is Godard's communist theory put into drama. The narrative forces the movie star to occupy a passive position, while the workers who dismiss her character as rich talk about their own lives, and voice their own complaints. The second part of the movie deals with how Fonda and Montan's married couple is impacted by their experience of having been locked up with the workers, and how this experience affects the way they feel about their own work and their relationship. Both stars get to perform a long monologue to the camera in this section, in their native language. So Montan speaks French, and Fonda speaks English. But a French female voice is dubbed on top of Fonda's voice in translation, literally drowning out Fonda's American voice with a French version. It sounds like this. You know, maybe it's a question of, 
of style. C'est peut-être une question de style. Je ne sais pas si, si vous voyez, mais il y a un style de la boîte. Écoutez les émissions, on a vraiment l'impression que c'est toujours la même personne qui a pensé et qui a écrit tout le temps. Bon, alors moi je m'aperçois que pour parler de ce dont je veux parler, ce style ne sert à rien. With To Va Bien, Godard was making a movie starring Jane Fonda, even less that One Plus One was a movie about the Rolling Stones. In both cases, Godard accepted the access and money that these pop cultural phenoms could bring him, and then he turned the tables, exerting his own control within narratives that rendered the stars powerless and reduced them to cogs in Godard's machine. The morning of the Oscars in 1972, Jane Fonda woke up with the flu. She was always getting sick, partially due to her insane schedule and lack of sleep, although her continued disordered eating didn't help. She had contemplated not even going to the Oscars that year, even though she was nominated for her work in Clute. She didn't know how to balance what Hollywood considered to be politically correct with the political statements she was burning to make with her every action. In the end, she decided to go, wearing not a gown, but a high-necked Mandarin jacket. And when they approached the venue, she invited her black chauffeur to join her and her entourage inside the auditorium for the show. The difficulty Jane had faced deciding how to approach the Oscars was compounded when, as they drove up, protesters began banging on the limousine, shouting, Down with Fonda! Down with Fonda! Was this a harbinger of things to come? Would the industry punish her for her activism by not awarding her the Best Actress prize? The answer was no. Inside the auditorium, Jane and her entourage were seated in the front row. And towards the end of the night, the winner of Best Actress was announced. May I have the envelope, please? The winner is Jane Fonda. Thank you very much, members of the Academy, and thank all of you who applauded. There's a great deal to say, and I'm not going to say it tonight. I would just like to really thank you very much. Jane was stunned by the ovation given to her by the assembled members of the film industry. As she walked off holding her Oscar, she started to cry. She was so honored that Hollywood still accepted her, that the industry had shown support of her, and by extension, condoned her activism. Still not interested in acting in movies unless they could be meaningful, after the Oscars, Jane gave a lecture in downtown LA at which she showed slides that had been given to her by associates of the North Vietnamese government while she was in Paris working with Godard. One of the attendees of the lecture was Tom Hayden, the alleged male chauvinist pig who had been kicked out of the Berkeley Commune, where Jane's now ex-boyfriend Robert Shear had lived. Jane had met Hayden before, in Detroit, while she was working on the Winter Soldier project. She had thought he was funny-looking, and that he reminded her of her father. This time, a year later, Jane and Tom connected. She went home and told her personal assistant that she had just met the man with whom she would be spending the rest of her life. A week later, Tom came over to Jane's house in Laurel Canyon to show her his own Vietnam slides. A few featured teenage girls in brothels who had bleached their hair and had had plastic surgery to look more American. Jane suddenly started crying. 
I was talking about the superficial sexiness Jane had once promoted and exemplified in Barbarella, and now she was trying to shake, Hayden later wrote. I looked at her in a new way. Maybe I could love someone like this. Tom Hayden had been one of the leaders of the anti-war protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and he had been indicted for conspiracy for his supposed role in inciting the violence that occurred there, along with Abby Hoffman and five other men that had been collectively dubbed the Chicago Seven. At the time of Jane's lecture, Hayden was out on bail pending an appeal of his conviction, which would soon be overturned. In American leftist circles in 1972, Hayden's brush with the law gave him outlaw credibility, and he was in demand as a public speaker. He had recently evolved in his position on the Vietnam War, from anti-war pacifist to pro-Hanoi. After Hayden's slideshow, he and Jane immediately became a couple. She started growing out her hair long again, because he preferred it. Tom saw Jane as, quote, a rich person out of touch with reality, and he was happy to nurture and feed her curiosity about his areas of expertise. Tom urged Jane to stop trying to make an impact in different movements and to join him in putting her full weight behind trying to stop the war in Vietnam. Over the next months and years, Jane would tell people that Tom saved my life. Some of her friends and family saw it differently. They saw her relinquishing the selfhood that she had fought to liberate and allowing it to be subjugated fully to the new man in her life. In the summer of 1972, Jane was invited by a group called the Vietnamese Committee for Solidarity with the American People to visit North Vietnam. Jane had been hearing stories about the 15 million Vietnamese who lived in villages and farmed rice on either side of the Red River, where dikes had reportedly been bombed by Americans, resulting in the flooding and famine of civilians. She had read in the Pentagon Papers of a plan ginned up by Robert McNamara in 1966 to use starvation as a tool of warfare. If bombing the dikes caused the rice fields to flood and caused the starvation of more than a million Vietnamese, the U.S. could then offer supplies of food in negotiations. President Johnson hadn't acted on this plan. But six years later, it appeared, based on reports from a Swedish delegation that had visited the area, that Nixon had. These reports were dismissed by the U.S. government as propaganda. Jane wanted to go see for her own eyes and photograph the sights herself. Tom, who had made two trips to Vietnam himself, one to bring back American POWs, encouraged her to make the trip, and he helped arrange it but he didn't offer or ask to come with her. Jane would travel to Vietnam alone, which was virtually unheard of for any activist, let alone one of the most famous women in the world. Of course, Jane was never really alone during her two weeks in Vietnam. She was followed constantly by photographers and reporters, and her actions were always being monitored by the FBI, and now the CIA. When Jane arrived in Hanoi, after a grueling trip on which she injured her foot while running in an airport, and after a detour necessitated by an air bombing that was taking place as her plane was getting ready to land, Jane was handed a schedule by her local handlers. This should have been the first indication that she was not the one controlling this trip, especially since the itinerary included a stop that she had previously made it clear she didn't want to make at an anti-aircraft facility. Jane believed she was in Hanoi primarily to see the dikes. She had no interest in visiting military sites. Later, she'd come to understand that people she thought were friendly reporters, and even her own bodyguard, had been employed to inform on her for the FBI. But in the beginning, Jane trusted that she was in good hands. And after her long journey to Vietnam, she was too tired to put up much of a fight. 
Over the next few days, Jane was able to meet dozens of real Vietnamese people. And through a translator, she talked to them about their lives and how they were impacted by the war. She saw much visual evidence herself. As she described it in an interview later that year, I saw children, women, old people, homes, churches, schools leveled to the ground. She was extremely moved by the devastation she saw. She had brought an 8mm film camera with her, and she was able to film the wreckage of the dikes and the villagers working as fast as they could to repair the damage, and the fact that there was not a military target to be seen for miles around. After a few days of meeting people who were resilient and kind, who told her they were not anti-American, but anti-Nixon, After visiting a Vietnamese exhibit on war crimes and talking to a doctor about birth defects caused by Agent Orange, Jane asked if she could go on the radio to address American pilots. As she'd explain soon after returning to the U.S. When I saw these civilian targets bombed, when I saw the bodies of women riddled with pellets, plastic pellets that don't show up on x-rays, people who had, who had vomited themselves to death because of a gas called CS1 that perfected since Nixon came to office. I got on the radio. I, I asked to get on the radio because I knew of no other way to reach the pilots. I have tried to go to South Vietnam and they refused. I've tried to go to Thailand and they refused to let me in the State Department. And I said to the men, I don't think that you know what, what is, I don't think that you could possibly have any idea of the effect of the, of the bombing because you can't see the targets and I don't know what you're told. Did you encourage them not to fly? I said, we must all think seriously about what we're doing here. We must not be turned into robots. I know what basic training is. I'm worried about your souls. I said, I don't think it's possible to push buttons and pull levers that, are, that is doing this kind of damage to civilians and have our souls remain intact. All right, I want to go back to That's the mother. That's what I said to them. Oh, all right. In these broadcasts, she talked about what she had seen with her own eyes bomb craters in the middle of a hospital and a school, for instance. And she asked American soldiers listening to think about why they would follow orders to bomb a hospital or a school. She didn't ask them not to follow orders. She just asked them to think. Her intentions were good. But these radio broadcasts, in which, amongst other things, Jane called Nixon a war criminal, were recorded by both the Viet Cong and the FBI, and both sides used them in ways that would hurt Jane. The Vietnamese played the recordings to American POWs, which seems to have led to false reports that Jane herself had taunted the POWs. According to Jane, when she was brought to meet seven POWs in Hanoi, a few of them told her they agreed with her politics and wanted their family members to vote Nixon out of office. And one, a Navy captain named David Hoffman, asked Jane to tell his wife back home that his arm, which had been broken when he was thrown from his plane, had healed while he was in captivity. Back in the U.S., the radio recordings would be used to support the claim that Jane had called on American pilots to abandon their orders and to defect which led to Jane being accused of having committed treason. But the radio broadcasts alone wouldn't have been as much of a problem if not for the images documenting how Jane spent part of her last day in Hanoi. This was when her hosts insisted that she visit an anti-aircraft installation. Jane hadn't wanted to go, But she didn't want to be impolite to people who she believed had treated her well for the duration of her stay. There was a lunch beforehand, with some international journalists, where booze was served. Then Jane and the journalists were brought to see the big gun that, they were told, was the key line of defense against American bombs. Someone put a helmet on Jane's head, the kind of helmet she had worn throughout the trip for safety, as she moved through areas that were being bombed by air and suggested she climb up into the gunner's seat. Everyone was laughing, including Jane. She was up there less than a minute, just long enough to obey a request 
that she sing a South Vietnamese anti-war anthem that she had learned. Cameras clicked all the while, and a Japanese journalist shot film footage. When it was over, Jane immediately knew she was in trouble. Oh my god, she thought. It's going to look like I was trying to shoot down U.S. planes. She begged her translator to make sure that the photos were destroyed. And Jane was told they would be. They were not. Later, Jane would come to understand why these images were so powerful. She wrote, I realize that it is not just a U.S. citizen laughing and clapping on a Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun. I am Henry Fonda's privileged daughter, who appears to be thumbing my nose at the country that has provided me these privileges. More than that, I am a woman, which makes my sitting there even more of a betrayal. A gender betrayal. And I am a woman who is seen as Barbarella, a character existing on some subliminal level as an embodiment of men's fantasies. Barbarella has become their enemy. I have spent the last two years working with GIs and Vietnam veterans and have spoken before hundreds of thousands of anti-war protesters, telling them that our men in uniform aren't the enemy. Now, by mistake, I appear in a photograph to be their enemy. I carry this heavy in my heart. I always will. Jane flew from Hanoi to Paris, where she planned to show the footage she had shot of the bombed dikes. This footage was potentially very damaging to the Nixon administration, which continued to deny that the U.S. had bombed the dikes. When Jane landed, she discovered that the film's soundtrack was being held at customs, and she couldn't get it out. She showed her footage without sound at a press conference at a screening room on the Champs-Élysées, with Jane giving live narration. She arranged to fly to New York two days later to repeat the presentation there for American journalists. By the next day, when she held her U.S. premiere of her film at the New York press conference, the footage of her sitting on the anti-aircraft gun had made the U.S. evening news. A still photo had run that morning in the New York Post, with the caption, Hanoi Jane. The American journalists who came to see Jane's presentation were riled up, and some were hostile. The reporters told Jane that she was being perceived as, at best, a pawn who was unwittingly used by the North Vietnamese for propaganda purposes, and at worst, a traitor. Emotion got the better of her, and she exploded into a rant about the history of Vietnam. Journalist David Halberstam's commentary was typical of members of the media who believed that they were being lectured by a dilettante. She wasn't that smart, Halberstam said later, and she was in way over her head. I've been in Nam. Fonda isn't a politician. She's a movie star. A stupid fucking actress. After this press conference, Jane's film footage simply vanished. She never knew how or why. Over the next few weeks, White House spokesman and finally Nixon himself denied Jane's claims of what she had seen at the Dyke sites and said that any evidence that the U.S. had done anything wrong in relation to the Dykes was North Vietnamese propaganda. David Halberstam was probably not alone in dismissing Jane Fonda as a stupid actress, but others gave her more credit by branding her as a traitor and a threat to national security. Right-wing columnists and congressmen began denouncing her on the regular, some calling for a boycott of her films. And it was not just supporters of the war who turned against Jane. The anti-war movement did too, because Jane's actions and statements were perceived to have been not anti-war at all, but instead in support of North Vietnamese warmongers. As a conscientious objector from Santa Monica put it in a letter to the LA Times, quote, 
Miss Fonda finds it sensationally appropriate to openly support the North Vietnamese and their acts of human destruction, while posing to be quote-unquote anti-war at the same time. The two guises are mutually exclusive. This letter is interesting because it reads Fonda's attempts to humanize the North Vietnamese people hurt by American bombing to be a tacit approval of the violence of the North Vietnamese regime. It also refers to both her anti-war image and her support of the North Vietnamese as a guise or a false front. In other words, she wasn't just a traitor, but a poser too. Tom Hayden had come to meet Jane in New York, and they retreated together to the Chelsea Hotel, where their bond was cemented by the grief they both felt over this disastrous situation. Tom felt responsible for not going with Jane, for letting her wander into the lion's den on her own. But Jane didn't blame Tom. She only blamed herself. As she would later write, It's possible that it was a setup that the Vietnamese had it all planned? I will never know. But if they did, I can't blame them. The buck stops here. If I was used, I allowed it to happen. It was my mistake and I have paid and continue to pay a heavy price for it. Had I brought a politically more experienced traveling companion with me, they would have kept me from taking that terrible seat. I would have known two minutes before sitting down what I didn't realize until two minutes afterwards. A two-minute lapse of sanity that will haunt me forever. In bed at the Chelsea Hotel, Jane clung to Tom. She told him she wanted to have his baby. In Dead of Summer, the film Jean Seberg made in Morocco in the summer of 1969, Jean would play yet another schizophrenic. In the middle of shooting, she was forced to fly to Paris for an operation to remove cysts from her breasts. Because Jean was in every scene of Dead of Summer, this caused a significant delay to the movie. When Jean returned and production resumed, she asked Ramon and their son Diego to join her on location. Vulnerable from the operation and the need to head right back to work before she was really ready, Jean liked the idea of being part of a family, and she considered reconciling with her second husband. When the shoot was over, the three of them vacationed together in Majorca. But the reconciliation didn't work out. In the fall of 1969, Jean begged off from going to the Paint Your Wagon premiere. As we noted in episode 4 of this series, Paint Your Wagon was not the flop that its reputation suggests. People did go to see it in 1969, and it ended that year as the sixth highest grossing movie of the year, right behind Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. It grossed over twice as much as Jane's movie that year, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which was considered a hit. But Paint Your Wagon left a sour taste in the mouths of the industry that produced it. In the year of Easy Rider, movies like Paint Your Wagon were newly deemed to be colossal wastes of money. The following year, Airport, starring Gene Seberg, would become the biggest film of the summer and the second highest grossing movie of the whole year, behind Love Story. But these box office successes didn't translate into more Hollywood work for Jean. Though 1970s American cinema would have been perfect for her in a lot of ways, it appears that the new directors emerging in the late 1960s and 70s didn't have any interest in trying to cast her. It's true that she was in the wrong kind of blockbuster movie in 1969 and 1970. Deeply uncool Hollywood movies. Though she had always been a little too unique for the studio system, now that that era was over, she carried with her the stink of its worst tendencies and excesses. 
This is one explanation for why Gene Seberg's Hollywood career ended with airport. Another explanation has to do with what was happening in her personal life and how the FBI chose to exploit it. Jean's last big Hollywood payday came in late 1969 for a film called Macho Callahan, a Western in which she falls in love with her rapist. Jean gave $2,500 of her paycheck to the Black Panthers. Macho Callahan shot on location in Mexico, and there, Jean, who spoke fluent Spanish, got involved with local student revolutionaries, giving them money and letting them stay at her house. When the film's director, Bernard Kowalski, started getting threats from the government to shut down the picture and deport Jean if she didn't cut it out, Kowalski talked to her, and she immediately agreed to chill out on her revolutionary moonlighting. By this time, she had already had an affair with a student organizer who called himself El Gato. By early 1970, Jean was back in Paris. Jean and Roman had decided to keep sharing the apartment they had lived in during their marriage to make things easier for their son. They built a wall dividing Jean's living space from Roman's, but the pair continued to share the kitchen. And then Jean realized... She was pregnant. According to some reports, Roman Gary believed the baby was his. Jean told several other people that the baby was not his. In a phone conversation taped by the FBI, Jean had an exchange that the FBI interpreted as her informing Black Panther Masai Hewitt that she believed the child was his. In this conversation, Jean told Masai that Roman would take responsibility for the child. If you read the transcript of the call closely, it seems more like Jean, who calls Hewitt Johnny Appleseed, is teasing Hewitt for having recently impregnated both Elaine Brown and another woman named Shirley, who he married. Jean and Elaine were friends. And Elaine's recollection of her discovery that Jean was pregnant suggests that neither woman believed that Jean's child was Hewitt's. Brown described the father as, quote, the boy in Mexico. In an interview given later in her life, Jean claimed that a Mexican revolutionary she called Carlos Navarro was the father. Given the extent to which they were surveilling her, the FBI must have known about this relationship in Mexico. They certainly knew that Jean believed that she was four months pregnant in April 1970, which put the date of conception squarely when she was in Mexico, and quite a while after her relationships with the two black radicals had cooled off. If there was a doubt about who the father of Jean's baby was, then the reasonable suspects should have been either the ex-husband with whom she continued to live in Paris, or someone she met in Mexico. But the FBI decided that they didn't care about reason. They launched a campaign to destroy what was left of Jean Seberg's reputation by impugning the paternity of her child. Their willing partner in this fake news campaign was the American media. Less than a week after monitoring Seberg's phone conversation with Hewitt and Brown, in which Jean acknowledged her pregnancy, Richard Held, the same FBI agent who would lead the campaign to spy on Jane Fonda for her own associations with the Panthers that spring, wrote a memo asking for permission to quote-unquote publicize Jean Seberg's pregnancy as having been the result of an affair with a black radical. It is felt the possible publication of Seberg's plight Held wrote, could cause her embarrassment and serve to cheapen her image with the general public. Held proposed that a letter be sent, signed by a quote-unquote fictitious person, to a Hollywood gossip columnist, including the sentences, I was in Paris last week and ran into Jean Seberg, who was heavy with baby. I thought she and Romaine had gotten together again, but she confided that the child belonged to name redacted of the Black Panthers. 
FBI headquarters gave their blessing to this plan. In a cable which read, in part, Gene Seberg has been a financial supporter of the BPP and should be neutralized. Seberg's pregnancy, it was added, affords an opportunity for such effort. The only suggestion was to wait until Seberg was farther along, too far along to deny the pregnancy or to terminate it. A few weeks later, Joyce Haber, gossip columnist for the Los Angeles Times, received an anonymous, typewritten tip. The tip read, Informant says, spelled S-E-Z, Jean Seberg is four months pregnant by Ray Hewitt, known as Maasai, and identified as present Black Panther Minister of Education. Informant says she has said she plans to have the baby. The note was delivered to the paper's offices and passed to Haber with a note from her editor, Bill Thomas, who confirmed that the information came from, quote, a pretty good source. On May 19, 1970, Haber ran a blind item in her column, headlined, Miss A rates as expectant mother. Here is the item in full. Let us call her Miss A because she's the current A topic of chatter among the inns of international showbiz circles. She is beautiful and she is blonde. Miss A came to Hollywood some years ago with the tantalizing flavor of a basket of fresh-picked berries. The critics picked at her acting debut, and in time, a handsome European picked her for his wife. After they married, Miss A lived in semi-retirement from the U.S. movie scene, but recently she burst forth as the star of a multi-million dollar musical. Meanwhile, the outgoing Miss A was pursuing a number of free-spirited causes, among them the Black Revolution. She lived what she believed, which raised a few establishment eyebrows. Not because her escorts were often blacks, but because they were black nationalists. And now, according to all those really in international sources, topic A is the baby Miss A is expecting and its father. Papa's said to be a rather prominent Black Panther. Three weeks later, The Hollywood Reporter ran a single-line blind item. Friends wondering how long Jean Seberg will be able to keep that secret, or if she'll want to. Jean Seberg and Jane Fonda's lives will run in parallel for just a little while longer, and then they'll start to diverge. One of the reasons why these actresses ended up on very different paths, with different fates, is that when the FBI attempted to plant false, defaming items about Gene Seberg in the Los Angeles press, they were successful. When they tried the same tactic to hurt Jane Fonda, they were not successful. Around the same time as the Haber tip, Richard Held sent a letter to legendary variety columnist Army Archard under a pseudonym, advising the gossip reporter that Jane was seen at a Black Panther benefit, leading the crowd in a chant that went, We will kill Richard Nixon and any other motherfucker who stands in our way. The whole atmosphere, the letter added, had the 1930s Munich Beer Hall aura. This letter, implicitly comparing Jane Fonda to Hitler, was sent to the columnist, but when its existence was revealed years later, Archard said he didn't remember receiving it. Whether he did or not, he never published it. While all this was happening, Airport was still in theaters and was the most popular movie of the year thus far. Even today, adjusted for inflation, 
Airport is considered one of the top 50 highest-grossing movies at the North American box office of all time. A hit about equivalent to Home Alone, American Graffiti, or Tim Burton's first Batman film. Despite being upset that major American publications, read by everyone in the film industry, were dropping blind items suggesting that her baby's father was a Black Panther and that there was something shameful about that, Seberg did not abandon the cause. She continued to support the Panthers, communicating with them by phone from Paris and sending money when she could. She did not speak out in response to the false insinuations that had run in the press. That was not Jane Seberg's style. She did not want to draw attention to the stories, or to herself. She had never gravitated toward the political spotlight— She had always preferred to work behind the scenes, to help the public faces of the cause get things done without going public herself. In fact, that summer of 1970, Jean and Ramon were united in their disapproval of how vocal someone like Jane Fonda was about her politics, how she pretended to be one with the Indians and the Panthers and the veterans. On July 1st, Jean's divorce from Ramon was finalized, but she was telling people that they would remarry. Ten days later, The Hollywood Reporter ran another item. Here are Black Panthers, the pappy of a certain film queen's baby, but her estranged husband's taking her back anyway. Jean's pregnancy was turbulent. She was ordered by her doctors to rest. It was the only chance she had of carrying her baby to something close to full term. She and Roman retreated to Majorca, where Jean realized quickly that the romance between them was gone. They were sleeping in separate bedrooms, and Gary seemed to have no interest in a real intimate relationship with her. Jean realized that he had agreed to stay with her and accept paternity of her baby, only to protect both of their reputations and that the whole thing was going to be a charade. This realization upset Jean greatly. In early August, she took too many sleeping pills and tried to walk out into the ocean. She was found passed out on the beach by her maid. Her stomach was pumped. The doctors believed that her baby was okay, but it was decided to move her to a clinic in Switzerland. She convalesced near the Matterhorn with a bodyguard, who sat by her bedside and helped her translate panther texts into French. Roman stayed in Majorca. News of Jean's hospitalization traveled through the grapevine and reached Edward Bear, the Paris correspondent for Newsweek magazine. Bear made a few phone calls to see what other people had heard, and then he filed a dispatch to his editor in New York. In the dispatch, Bear noted that Jean had been discharged from the hospital in Majorca, although he omitted the fact that she was still under medical care elsewhere. He reported that Jean and Roman, quote, will remarry in the future, and all concur that they have seldom been closer than in the last few months. Then, he added two additional bits of information. Strictly FYI, Bear wrote, the child Jean Seberg is expecting is not by Gary, but by a black California activist who figured prominently in her life at one stage and whose name I haven't been able to discover. Also FYI, one of the reasons they might remarry is that Gary, with considerable chivalry, wants to do everything he can to protect Jean's child from possible discrimination and psychological trauma arousing out of this situation. In twice prefacing these rumors with FYI, Bayer apparently thought he was essentially going off the record, as though FYI was equivalent to between you and me. Maybe this was shorthand between Bear and his editor. Bear later insisted that, quote, no malice was intended, and that he didn't expect his editor to publish the FYI items, 
which he admitted were mere rumors. But when Bear's dispatch arrived at the Newsweek office in New York, his usual editor was out of the office, and someone else wrote up Bear's information into a story. That story was published in Newsweek on August 17th, 1970, ten days after Jean's overdose. It read in full. Can a small-town girl from Iowa find happiness in Paris? It seems so, despite the ups and downs of her marriage. It's wonderful, smiled movie actress Jean Seberg, 31, when reporters looked in on her in a hospital in Majorca, where she was recuperating from complications in her pregnancy. We are completely reconciled, ironically just when our divorce papers are finally coming through. She and French author Ramon Garry, 56, are reportedly about to remarry, even though the baby Jean expects in October is by another man, a black activist she met in California. Jean was able to brush off the other blind items, but the Newsweek story wasn't blind. It was an article that named her and cited very specific true details while also printing the unverified rumor that a black activist was the father of her baby as fact. This story made Jean incredibly upset. The first thing she did was cable her parents to tell them not to pay any attention to the story and that she and Romant planned to sue Newsweek for libel. Then Jean called Black Panther headquarters, where her ensuing conversation was recorded by the FBI. She told whomever she spoke to that her number one priority was to give birth to a healthy baby. Once that was accomplished, she said, she was going to fight back. I have given instructions to a very prominent establishment liberal lawyer in New York to begin an extremely heavy and extensive and costly lawsuit for this defamation and intrusion in personal affairs. All the shit you can imagine, Jean said. She added that if she was able to get Newsweek to pay a large financial settlement, a, quote, great part of it would go directly to the Panthers. But she wasn't confident she'd get there because she was just feeling so rotten. If I get through the end of this month, then the child will be over seven months and he can possibly live, she said. But I've been in a bad situation and it's been a very lonely one because I've been through it, you know, really like completely alone. I'm really just a mess and I'm on my back most of the time. She also spoke on the phone with Masai Hewitt. I need moral support right now, she told him. I'm in a very low moral situation. Hewitt had his hands full with two pregnant women in the States. Shine it on, he advised Jean. In other words, be cool. Don't make such a big deal out of being sick and pregnant with no man or family around while the U.S. media is trying to destroy your reputation. In her loneliness and pain, Jean began to slip into paranoid delusions that there was a conspiracy against her. There was a conspiracy against her, but Jean did not know the FBI's role in what was going on at this point, and she instead suspected that her French bodyguard was a spy who was trying to tie Jean to Angela Davis, who was still on the run. This is around the same time that the FBI came to Henry Fonda's brownstone to question Jane about Davis's disappearance. Jean would come to believe that she had been held in Switzerland against her will and that transmitters had been installed in her ears so that her enemies could listen in on her at all times. On August 20th, the day after the Newsweek story had reached her, Jean went into premature labor. She was flown by helicopter to Geneva, where doctors drugged Jean in an effort to stop the contractions so that the birth could be delayed. On August 23rd, Jean wrote a letter to her old acting coach, Peyton Price. I am fighting like a lioness to save the child I am expecting, 
who, as you probably already know from bullshit lies in newspapers and specifically the last Newsweek, is a cause celeb for racist America before even being born. Jean didn't get a chance to mail the letter right away. That night, Jean was rushed into surgery, and via cesarean, she gave birth to a four-pound baby girl. The child was placed in an incubator, where she lived for two days. On August 25th, Jean's baby girl, who she had named Nina, died. Jean Seberg would never be the same again. Still in the hospital, while heavily sedated, Jean hallucinated that Black Panthers had come to her bedside and had tried to steal from her and had threatened her with a gun. She pulled out the letter she had written to Peyton Price and added to it. Two days later, my baby is dead. Tell David Dellinger to warn Huey Newton that the pigs control entirely the European panther contacts. I am of no utility to the party at present. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find information about the music used in this episode, as well as the sources that we use in our research process. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>